In recent times, we've seen the drag racing battles between the likes of the Lamborghini Huracan, Audi R8 and Nissan GTR really hot up. I'm here with Jordan, who is the driver of the AMS Alpha Omega Huracan, which is currently the second fastest in the world, running into the 7.3s at 194 mile an hour. Welcome to High Performance Academy's Tuned In Field Report podcast series. In these special midweek episodes, we look back through our archives to find the best conversations we've had through years worth of attending the best automotive events across the globe. We've pulled the audio from these tech-filled interviews with some of the industry's most well-known figures and presented it in podcast format for you to enjoy as a quick hit of insider knowledge. Uh, Jordan, I just wanted to find out a little bit more about what actually is required to make a Lamborghini Huracan go this quickly? Obviously, no slouch in stock form, but no benefit of turbochargers. Uh, what is the first step that was actually taken with the build of this particular car? Well, the first step on this car was to get around the factory connecting rods. The weak link in the V10 Audi slash Lamborghini motor would be either like a head gasket or connecting rod. You can ask a lot of those motors. There's people routinely making about 1,500 wheel horsepower on those motors. We knew in order to get into the big leagues and actually start chasing ET records, we were going to need more power than that, obviously. So we first addressed the motor, and then the next thing we got into is actually chassis setup. These these chassis and how you want to leave and how you want a short track is so radically different than how a GTR behaves. That was the next big learning curve. Um, some of the early videos are quite comical. I think three or four wheelies going down the track. And, you know, we, we stepped back and we realized, like, this isn't the type of car to get greedy off the line with just throw as much power as you can before you get into wheel spin. It just wants to pop a wheelie. Traction's not an issue. So we got into some pretty advanced wheelie control with our partners at Motec. Um, additionally, you know, figuring out how to use ballast and selecting the correct tire. Also, there was a suspension kit developed with JRZ that helps just damp the chassis down a bit to prevent some of the bouncing. And that got us a lot of ET. So uh, Let, Let's just come back a little bit there because you, you sort of just mentioned the, the GTR platform. And, uh, and we've seen a lot of the people that have sort of built up the GTR platform and then have transferred across to uh, Huracan R, R8. So obviously massive difference there in terms of the GTR being front engine versus the mid engine on the Huracan. In terms of the what you were just saying with the, the setup, that makes a massive difference to how you need to approach getting the car down the strip? Yes, 100%. Like typically with the GTR, you get as greedy as you can off the line with power until you get into wheel spin, right? And that's how you short track those things. Lamborghinis, no way. So first off, you have much more traction because you have the two heaviest components, the drivetrain, the engine and the transaxle sitting directly over the rear axle at all times. You don't need to worry about weight transfer. Traction's unlimited. What's not unlimited is the car's resistance to rotation. I mean, if you leave too hard, you make a mistake, you're going to be looking at the sky and dragging the bumper and damaging things. So it's got to be very careful with big tire, big power. And it's not going to be a cheap car to be damaging things on. Now, this leads back to what you were saying previously. You mentioned Motec, so I'm going to assume it's running the Motec dual ECU, yes, it is. essentially plug and play kit. You mentioned anti-wheelie, so let's talk about how, how that actually works. What what input is the ECU looking at to know that the front wheels are in the air and how does it combat that? Well, essentially, think traction control, but instead of looking at uh, slip ratio, we're looking at ride height. Okay. So it knows from the ride height, essentially, when the front wheels are about to leave the ground and therefore can reduce engine torque? Yes, exactly. 
Let's come back to that engine. I mean, one of the big advantages, obviously, the Audi R8 and Huracan platforms have over the likes of the GTR is you've got 10 cylinders instead of six. You've got 5.2 litres instead of 3.8. How much of a benefit is that in terms of being able to produce really high horsepower and also produce that with reliability? Are we, are we assuming that the engines are just less highly strung than a comparable GTR? Uh, there's a few things coming into it. Obviously, having four more rods and four more sets of valves and all that kind of stuff to take the beating is great. But they also tend to have VE a little higher up in the RPM than the VR38. So to make a given horsepower it requires less torque compounded with the fact that you have four more holes to distribute you know, the beating with. I guess that's the best way to put it. They're remarkably robust even in their factory stock form. I mean, guys have gone in full weight cars into the high sevens on a factory long block and the long block lives to tell about it. Like that's very impressive. And getting into more of the race oriented stuff with motors that aren't what you'd call, you know, heavily built with every single trick in the bag thrown in, factory camshafts still, they're making in excess of, you know, 22, 2300 horsepower and generally being pretty reliable. And that's really getting into billet block territory with the GTR and that kind of stuff. And you find you just don't need to go to that stuff as early. I'm sure there'll come a time, obviously, as people are pushing them when that becomes a necessity. For where we are, we've had pretty good luck so far. All right, so you mentioned the fact that you changed the rods in that engine, well, AMS changed the rods in that engine. At what point, sort of in the in the build-up of just adding twin turbos to the stock 5.2 NA engine, obviously you can go so far with that. At what point do, do the rods become a factor that, that needs to be changed out? Really, uh, that's kind of a loaded question because it depends on what turbos you're running, obviously, too. I mean, if you're running a smaller turbo trying to make 1,500 horsepower, those rods are seeing more force than if you were running like, you know, if you went to like a, a G35 1050 and you're trying to make 1,500 horsepower compared to doing it with the G40s, it's going to be easier on the rod. Like the danger zone is in the 14 to 1,500 horsepower. I mean, there's guys that get away with it for a very long period of time, and there's some guys that don't. You're working on factory tolerances. How good did, you know, Klaus in the factory torque the heads that day you know is this uh, you know an a is this an a rod or a b rod coming out of the factory I mean, you're getting into the margins there and typically for you wouldn't really push them that hard but everyone wants to chase a record for the stock motor and you see some pretty wild trap speeds like getting into the i believe the high 170s on a factory long block on a car that weighs roughly four thousand pounds of driver that's a lot of power yeah, absolutely. I, I think the important thing for our, our viewers to understand as well is the cost of replacing a set of rods is a lot cheaper than windowing a block and having to replace a- absolutely everything. So there's the sort of a reliability element a- as well as uh, we must do this. Your point there about the turbo size, though, I think is really valuable to understand because it is not just about the power level. It's how the engine produces the power. And really, as far as the connecting rod is concerned, it's the cylinder pressure that really is is compressing that rod so that's one of the failure modes so yeah as you mentioned not black and white there's not a fix this is the power level we we must go to a, an aftermarket rod now in terms of the other elements with the block with alloy factory blocks uh, another couple of issues we often come across is the bores flexing splitting uh, moving around in other words because of the high cylinder pressures we see with boost and then those people will go to sleeve in the blocks. And of course, then uh, at the very pointy end, there's billet blocks. So obviously you're mentioning that's not necessary where you are at the moment with the Omega. Uh, so far, things are working well with the factory bore. And again, like with the 5.2 motor, I think conventional wisdom was always we sleeve it and everyone had this mentality where, oh, it's stronger. But then on the other hand, is it really stronger or did nobody have the tooling required to deal with like an Alusil or a Nicosil type bore and a, and a ring pack? So we're playing with it. And like this car here is 
on a factory bore has been into the 740s and 750s numerous times, 500 miles of normal driving afterwards with no real ill effects. I mean, obviously, are they going to last 100,000 miles? I would probably argue not. But there seems to be a modicum of reliability around the 2,000 horsepower level with the factory bores that we've seen. And if you want to go back to a totally factory long block with factory rotating assembly, they seem to live forever at about 12 to 1,300 wheel horsepower, which is amazing. That's impressive for something that rolled off the showroom floor with what, around 600 horsepower, am I right? Yeah, exactly. And you're you're essentially tripling it. And the rod is about the size of my thumb. It's just terrifying when you look at the rod and you know what's happening at the rear wheels. And it's like, wow. (laughs) Do you want to take your car knowledge game to the next level? Join us in the next free lesson at hpacademy.com slash free and start developing your own skills today. So billet blocks are also available for this particular engine. Have you got an idea? Obviously, I've mentioned you're not there yet, but people want to go faster and you know everyone wants to make more power. At what point would you consider that's an essential? Or is it going to be a case of seeing at which point the factory block cries enough and gives up? I think that's going to be how it is. I mean, obviously, there's others out there like UGR that have probably found that limit, and they do have established billet blocks, and they have the trap speeds to show it in the roll events. I mean, I believe also their drag car has gone 218. It's gone much faster than us in a quarter, but it's only less than, I think it's about the 10th quicker. So we're focusing on short track because that's AMS's background is drag racing and making the cars efficient. And, and UGR's big trump card is, you know, they know how to make power. They've been doing it a long time and they've done all sorts of events that reward high horsepower, like half mile races and that kind of stuff and roll racing, which is their bread and butter. So it's interesting to see the two different approaches the camps take into chasing after quarter mile times. Yeah, I think that's actually worth focusing on a little bit because it can be really tempting when you're a tuner or an engine builder just strive for let's make more and more and more power and that'll show up with the mile an hour, which is great. But often, and I've, I've been in this situation myself with our Mitsubishi program many years ago, making more power can make it a lot harder to actually get the car to 60 foot to, to get out of the hole. And I mean, there was an old rule of thumb, which I think stacks up pretty well, that gaining a tenth at the, at the 60 foot generally will give you two tenths at the end of the track. So you know, what are you focusing on there as a comeback to that not hitting it too hard off the line with power that you were mentioning earlier to get that, that short track time to, to be as quick as possible? Yeah, a lot of it comes down to, you know, A, get the correct coilover package for the application, find the right tire, like, you know, at least on this car, and like Omega, we've had good luck with the JRZ coilovers and there's the adjustability we need to set the cars up for the various tires. And then, you know, as far as like something that would be a little more casual, we have a good 17 inch offering here. Otherwise, we prefer for the big pointy end drag stuff, a 15 inch wheel and tire. There's just more options available. From there, it comes into TCM setup, which is absolutely key. So if you nail it, you're going to be looking at the sky and see breaking things. If you don't come in hard enough, you're going to burn a clutch. You're going to do something. And if you come in just right, it leaves like a dream and you're not wheel hopping. You're not beating things up. Just the right amount of slip. And that is an art into itself. AMS is extremely good with their TCM calibrations, which everyone thinks top line horsepower numbers and, you know, air fuel ratios and ignition timing. And that's all very relevant to what you're doing. But at the end of the day, like the power delivery in the first 10, 15 feet of the track is going to dictate how the passes and the short tracks are really going to have an outsized effect on the ET. And ultimately, how do you want to drag race? Do you want it with mile an hour or ET? Talking to others that are involved with DCT transmissions at this sort of upper level, uh, from what I understand, the difficulty is that you really can't get as much slip as you would like with these clutches because they are so so small and you'll sort of burn them up and create heat. So so that is a, a sort of tightrope you're walking to get out of the hole? That's correct. I mean, if you think about your classic drag setup, 
the best thing around is a torque converter because you get to have a big speed difference between the crankshaft of the motor and the rear tire going through the gear ratio, and it just turns into a little heated fluid, and it gets cooled down, and everyone's happy at the end of the day. Clutches are a little tougher, especially when you get into the high clamp or the high torque clutches. Like, look at some of the Dodson and stuff with, you know, 12, 13 plates. They don't have much more Z height in the stack, so then you get into very, very thin frictions, and when you get into that, they just don't have the thermal capacity, and so you slip them too much, and they get hot, and they warp, and you've been to clutch, and that's no fun. So, really, everything's very critical with TCM tuning. You have just the right amount of slip, so you're not shocking the drivetrain you're not knocking the tire loose but you're also not heating the clutch and i think at this point ams is the best at that i mean everyone has their trick and i think short track for sure is ams's trick i mean i don't think anyone is uh, competing with their short track i mean obviously there's people making more power out there we're working on that we're getting there but overall like the packages being put together are quite mature at this point i mean i think it's important to understand that once you've got the the car leaving nicely it becomes easier then to go faster by adding more power to it if you've got a car that's already difficult to 60 foot and and it's not really happy getting out of the hole generally at least in my experience just throwing a whole bunch more power at it is only going to sort of exaggerate the ill handling problems and, and make your life harder does that sort of line up with what your experience is yeah, 100%. I mean, typically that's reflected in logs by just less timing because <laughs> you know, it's just traction control keeping you off the wall. Or even sometimes I think people will come out saying, I want a drag race. I'm going to put enormous turbos on them. And they don't have an appreciation then for the knife edge you run on trying to avoid bogging it, but also not blowing the tire off and getting the, you know, getting the car onto boost while you're actually trying to heads up race can be very tough because, again, you can't bump into a light against a torque converter with a DCT car. You have to bring it up with exhaust energy. So if your turbos are too big, okay, great, you might be able to sit there at the line for five seconds on launch control, heating up your valves, and make a pass for a record, but how are you going to heads-up race that? Yeah, I, I think there's a very big difference between racing for PBs and world records versus a car that is actually competitive and can go laps and beat the person in the other lane. And ultimately, PBs or world records or not, what we're actually doing is racing the person in the other lane. So it's important not to lose sight of that. So far, we haven't made any mention of the, the turbo package. And I mean, I haven't been involved in one firsthand, but from what I see, the R8s and Huracans are really crying out for turbos. You've got all of this room at, at the back of the engine compartment, so much room for activities. just just asking for a pair of turbos. So physically, the the mechanical installation, I'm guessing, is is not overly difficult. No, it's fairly straightforward. Really, it comes down to think of a Michelin starred restaurant. Um, they buy eggs and they buy milk just like everyone else. Um, it's the preparation and the recipe that really determines how the car is going to run. And if you look at you know a track record of okay, there's a lot of guys who have big dyno slips or they can make it through two gears or three gears and show a fast sixty one thirty. But that doesn't address how the cars drive when you're not racing them or you know how long the trans going to last because they're hitting them too hard to the torque convert or how they ET. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that goes into tuning it and keeping a lot of this stuff in-house that you just can't export. I think a lot of people are jumping on the V10 bandwagon because you look at it and like compared to a GTR turbo kit, it's physically easier to make. There's more room. So why not make turbo kits? There's actually it's, it's easier to do. But the tuning's a bit more complex and the chassis are harder to figure out. And I mean, obviously there's a lot of learning still going on in the transmission end because, you know, John Shepard has the GT, you know, the GTR stuff so well figured out stateside here. Everyone's still learning. That GTR transmission element now is, is fairly mature. There were a yes. lot of problems in the early days, but but now that's pretty well dialed in. And there's a number of companies, John, obviously one of them, who are producing pretty reliable transmissions, not quite at that level with the DCTs out of this platform. No, there's definitely some development to be done yet. Now, we've had really good 
success partnering with Dodson. I mean, we were in the game less than a year before we were able to take the ET record. And a lot of that was, you know, them making the parts that we needed to keep the drivetrain in the car to do it. And, you know, here and there, you know, we'll find a small issue or whatnot. And typically, you know, we're the one of the first people to find it because we're hitting them the hardest and they've been good about being proactive and addressing things. Yeah, in terms of the the turbo sizing, can you give us some indication on the likes of the Omega car, what turbos are on that and what sort of boost levels you're using in the deep end where traction isn't an issue? Sure. So uh, right now, everything that uh, Amos builds has Garrett turbos on it for the most part. And uh, right now, Omega is running a set of uh, G42 1450s. And I think it's hitting somewhere in the maybe high 30s boost level to get into the, you know, I would say the mid 2000 horsepower range. And again, that sounds like a kind of a low number, but again, you're looking at a five, two liter V8 with lots of valves, really good VE. It makes over a hundred horsepower, a liter from the factory. I mean, the motors are very efficient. It does sound to me on that basis that there's probably a little bit of headroom left, at least in the turbochargers. Is, is that reasonable? Yeah, for sure. But again, until we can uh, get the car to work how we want it, there's no sense in beating the car up to add almost no ET and a few miles an hour. It's just, that's not our mentality. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. All right, if we could sort of look into the crystal ball and, and see where the development sort of starts to, to come to an end, what do you expect in terms of power out of the Omega and where do you see that leading to in terms of ETN mile an hour in the next couple of years? Ideally, it'd be nice to get something starting with a six and maybe 200 and something. I think the car probably has the power at this point to break the 200 mile an hour barrier. But quite frankly, as, you know, as I've repeated throughout the interview, we're focused on ET right now and getting the car to work. And then the question is, how many people want that level of package? And you know, are you going to have a lot of people wanting to buy that? Or have you taken a car and found out what all the weak links are so you can address the lower end? You know, when I say lower end, that's not a derogatory term, but just people who don't feel the need for a 2,500 horsepower or 2,400 horsepower car. But it's nice to know that somebody has been there and above that and they know what to address before they hand you, you know, a grenade with no pin. Absolutely. And I think what you're saying is exactly right. There's only ever going to be a handful of people that want to perform at that sort of level. But I mean, for a company like AMS, it's really a, a show showcase of, of what exactly. they're capable of. And that doesn't matter if you're trying to make 1,200 horsepower, 2,500 horsepower or anywhere in between. Look, great to, to get some insight into what goes into one of these cars. And uh, Jordan, we wish you all the best for the hunt for that six-second uh, ET. Thank good, you very good much. Luck. We're going to need luck, but we'll take it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to leave a review on whatever platform you've chosen to listen to it on. It goes a long way to help us getting the word out there. All these conversations and much more are also available in full on our High Performance Academy YouTube channel, so make sure you subscribe. It's a one-stop shop when it comes to going faster, stopping quicker, and cornering better.